unlike or perhaps like my predecessors and the organizers of this conference, I haven't the faintest idea what dark materialism is, but uh, not knowing a thing about the subject has never presented an academic from speaking about it, so I'm going to speak at length about dark materialism. My title is Dark Epiphanies. We all remember the manager's boy and his insolent blackhead who exclaims in a tone of scathing contempt, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. You have recognized, of course, uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And we all remember what immediately precedes this, Kurtz's famous last words. He cr I quote, he cried twice, a cry that was more than a breath, the horror, the horror, end of quote which leads to the equally famous explicate of the tale when Marlowe lies to the intended and says that her loved one's last word was her name. I quote, I could not tell her it would have been too dark, too dark altogether. And the tale being finished, Marlowe once again contemplates the landscape of the Thames at nightfall. The offing was barred by a black bank of clouds and the tranquil waterway leading to the uttermost ends of the earth flowed somber under an overcast sky, seemed to lead into the heart of an immense darkness. It is no great discovery to state that the general coloring of the text, be it of the landscape of the human heart, uh, or, or, or be it of the landscape or of the human heart, is dark. In the title, as in the last sentence of the text, we find the currencies of the word dark, which also appears as early as the second paragraph. The air was dark above Gravesend. And such darkness is inextricably both material and spiritual. It is a darkness of dusk, of a dark continent peopled by blacks. Sorry. Uh, Witness the central episode of the Black Queen, whom Marlowe sees as he approaches Kurtz's residence. And it is also the darkness of unbearable affect and of the human heart. The inextricable link is embodied in our language in the banal anti-metaboly. The heart of darkness is the objective correlative of the darkness of the heart. So that when on the very point of death, Kurtz, who is meeting his maker, exclaims, the horror, the horror, he's not only voicing an experience of epiphany, he's also bearing witness to what may be called a dark or a black epiphany. An epiphany not of light, of revelation and enlightenment, but of unnameable horror. The phrase, however, is not in common use and for good reasons as a black epiphany sounds like a contradiction in terms. For an epiphany, being the moment when God reveals himself and appears in person to the faithful, can only be experienced and expressed in terms of light. The archetypal epiphany in the Old Testament is the episode of the burning bush in Exodus 3.2, and this is not for Moses a moment of darkness. I quote, and the angel of the Lord appeared unto him as in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burnt with fire, 
and the bush was not consumed. There is no blackness here, not even in the form of ashes. And if we turn to the archetypal epiphany in the New Testament, the encounter on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, 3-15, we do find the requisite light. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, so sudden and violent, in fact, that Saul immediately falls from his horse as the Lord addresses him in the voice of Jesus. But straight after this epiphany of light, darkness comes, and Saul arose from the earth, and when his, eye was, his eyes were open, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. However, this blindness is temporary and lasts only three days. It is a temporary blindness induced by the excess of light, not the darkness in which the dying Kurtz is being engulfed. It is present only to increase the effect of divine revelation through light and word, and to mark the rebirth of Saul into Paul. A dark epiphany, on the other hand, insists on the temporary character of the light that is associated with life, and on the definitive character of the darkness, both material and spiritual, that awaits its subject or victim. It is not, therefore, an epiphany, properly speaking. There can be no such thing as a black or dark epiphany. And yet the experience that Kurtz undergoes undoubtedly shares some characteristics with an experience of epiphany. It is a kind of revelation with definitive consequences, involving, if not light, at least its inverse. And this experience is common in at least one kind of text, texts that belong to the genre of the fantastic. The term dark epiphany, therefore, is not without a certain aptness when it is used to name what appears to be the negative double of a religious epiphany. A new reader of Lovecraft will have come across innumerable instances of such dark epiphanies. At the end of the tale, when the narrator meets dark ancient gods and goes mad. For instance, in The Rats in the Wall, one of Lovecraft's better stories, the narrator and hero, a rich American, rebuilds the noble pile in England when his family had emigrated in the 17th century under a cloud of witchcraft. Once settled in the castle of his forebears, however, is disturbed by the noise of rats scurrying down the walls, scurrying in the walls, which, being built recently in hard concrete, can hardly be riddled with mouse holes. And he's the only person who hears the rats, with the exception of his, of course, black cat. The rest of the story tells of his descent into ever deeper and more ancient cellars, down to an antediluvian cave, where his ancestors worshipped primeval gods and practiced unspeakable rites. There he experiences a black epiphany, goes raving mad, uttering a string of words that regress from modern English to the Latin of the worshippers of Cybele and to the unintelligible lingo of the ancient god, ending in the inarticulate grunts 
that are typical of the end of a Lovecraft story. This is the last paragraph of the text. I quote, This is what they say I said when they found me in the blackness after three hours. Found me crouching in the blackness over the plump, half-eaten body of Captain Norris, with my own cat leaping and tearing at my throat. Now they have blown up exemplary, taken my nigger man away from me, and shut me into this barred room at Hanwell with fearful whispers about my heredity and experience. Captain Norris is the archaeologist who helped, him, who helped the hero investigate the ancient cellars, and as you have guessed, nigger man is a black cat who here, against the tradition of his cat, of his kind, sorry, is not a representative of the devil. You have noticed, of course, the association between the dark epiphany and blackness, the darkness of the heart of the blasphemer who regresses towards ancient and unspeakable gods, finding an objective correlative in the darkness of the cave. And truly, in Lovecraft, as in any experience of dark epiphany, material darkness accompanies and indicates spiritual darkness. Here is an extract from Lovecraft's last original story, The Haunter in the Dark. The hero has visited the accursed tower, and in his diary he tells of the hideous experience. I quote, Once his groping hands encountered a pillar of stone with a vacant top, whilst later he found himself clutching the rungs of a ladder built into the wall and fumbling its uncertain way upward Towards, towards some region of intense stench where a hot, searing blast beat down against him. Before his eyes, a kaleidoscopic range of phantasmal images played, all of them dissolving at intervals into the picture of a vast, unplumbed abyss of night wherein worlds, suns and worlds of an even profounder blackness. He thought of the ancient legends of ultimate, ultimate chaos at whose central, at whose center sprawled the blind idiot, idiot god Azathos, lord of all things, encircled by his flopping horde of mindless and amorphous dancers, and lulled by the thin, monotonous piping of a demoniac flute held in nameless paws. This sounds very much like a purple passage, except that due to Lovecraft's inimitable or rather too easily parodied style, every passage is a purple passage. And this passage, as you have noted, ends on a pathetic note, those nameless pause, which suggest a doggy gone berserk. But what the narrator, who as usual dies of terror at the end of the tale, here experiences, is a prelude to a black epiphany, the encounter with the dark gods that will destroy him <coughs> being foreshadowed by the vision of, of a chaos of darkness, of a blackness which is even blacker than the unlit staircase of the church tower in the darkest, darkest of nights. The tale revolves on electrical storms that cause failures in the supply of electricity of the town and allows a creature of darkness to venture forth. So a black epiphany is not so much a contradiction in terms as an oxymoron and perhaps a paradox. The paradox expressed through oxymoron of darkness visible. The fact that a dark epiphany 
is the inverted double of a religious epiphany, as a black mass is, an, is the inverted double of a holy mass, suggests that we are dealing with a cultural archetype, best expressed in the Miltonian oxymoron just quoted, and in the banal anti-metabole that structures Conrad's tale. We may represent the, the archetype as an extended metaphor in the guise of a correlation of antonyms, an integral part of our cultural tradition, of the common sense that structures our daily life. Here is a correlation, light versus dark, good versus evil, heaven versus hell, up versus down, the sky versus the pit, light versus heavy, soul versus body, and spirit versus matter. This correlation, which is not characterized by its striking originality, but that is precisely the point, inscribes what Antonio Gramsci called common sense, the chaotic medley of traditional and sometimes ancient knowledge and belief, sedimented and frozen into set phrases, proverbs, and cliches. The metaphors we live by, to borrow the title of Lake of Johnson's famous book, which offers not a description of the human mind as the authors believe, hence the name of the theory, the cognitive theory of metaphor, but a journey through the trivialities of our linguistically inscribed and historically determined common sense. And truly, the correlation reads like an anthology of the figures of thought and of speech by which such common sense is constructed. Such, thus, each column presents a couple of antonyms. Common sense is naturally Manichaean and moralizing, and such couples are what, according to Gremas, the deep structure of our narratives consists of, games of contraries and contradictories. The passage from one column to the next occurs through metaphorical drifting, involving what Lakoff and Johnson call orientational metaphors of the type, up is good, uh, those are predicated on the body of the speaker, being up is associated with health, being down with illness. Orientational metaphors give rise to systems of structural metaf metaphors through metaphorical but also encyclopedic drifting, as carried, for instance, by religious traditions which associate heaven and light of the type light is good. And structural metaphors combine into metaphorical syllogism based on the topoi whereby common sense passes for natural. An instance of such syllogism would be if heaven is good and heaven is light, then light is good. That the syllogism belongs to the realm of common sense or ideology rather than of logic is shown by the fact that premise and conclusion can be easily exchanged. Lakoff and Johnson's theory of cognitive metaphor analyzes metaphors are productions of thought independently of the words that inscribe them. A structural metaphor can be exemplified by an indefinite number of different words. But common sense also uses the workings of language in the shape of figures of speech. In this case, the English language provides an instance of antinatalysis, in other words, a, a perfect pun, since the word light figures in two different columns with two different meanings. Light versus dark, light versus heavy. And the double meaning of the term facilitates a metaphorical passage from light to soul and darkness to matter. This will remind us of Althusser's first theory of ideology, 
formulated in poor Marx, was a mark of ideology is systematic punning and semantic inversion, thus a free contract between the worker and his employer has nothing, nothing free about it, as a worker has no choice but to sell his labour power. The correlation makes it clear that there cannot be such a thing as a dark epiphany, as the phrase must be an oxymoron, since its elements belong to the two antonymic lines of the correlation. Even if it dazzles, it causes temporary blindness and general havoc in the life of the subject that experiences it, epiphanic revelation can only be good and light, and the dark epiphany is a contradiction in terms. But oxymoron is one of the figures that construct common sense, the logic of which, like the logic of dreams, ignores the principle of contradiction. And the oxymoron established by subreption a link between dark epiphany, a spiritual experience, and the heaviness of matter, as opposed to the lightness of spirit. What is revealed in a black epiphany drags the subject down a material abyss, peopled by Lovecraft's ancient gods and their unsavory material pores. Matter, therefore, for this type of common sense, is both heavy and dark, the opposite, the opposite of the light and lightness of spirit. We find ourselves, therefore, in front of an ideological nexus which needs to be explained. We have a contradiction in terms, a dark epiphany, or rather an oxymoron, an oxymoron, a figure of speech common, common sense is fond of. It seems to react against the manichaeism of ideological couples of antonyms with a system of dominance, but in that very reaction comfort both the couples of antonyms and the system of dominance. The time has come to explore the cultural genealogy of this construction. Common sense knows no beginning, and the darkness of matter is old as the hills. There is, however, one locus classicus for the metaphor of dark matter, one already evoked in the case of the dark epiphany with the archetypal formulation of the Miltonian oxymoron, darkness visible. In the first book of Paradise Lost, Satan, newly expelled from the light of heaven and the presence of God, whom in his pride he opposed, surveys his new domain, I quote, at once as far as angels can, he views the dismal situation waste and wild, a dungeon horrible on all sides round, as one great furnace flamed, yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible, served only to discover sights of woe, regions of sorrow, doleful shades, where peace and rest can never dwell. In this bottomless pit, an unvanquished Satan hopes for revenge, and his first act is not an attempt to escape, but an interaction with that matter in the form of the building of a new city, Pandemonium. First book of Paradise Lost is a site of the imaginative construction of dark matter as a material correlative of the dark light of dark epiphany. Construction goes through the following four steps. The first step is an extension of the oxymoron of darkness visible through the image, in the lines I've quoted, of the flames that give, up, give off not light but darkness. In the second step, such darkness becomes material. 
It is the darkness of the dark lava that emerges glowing from the abysses of the Earth. This is the image of the erupting volcano, which, through the eruptions of Vesuvius and Etna, captured, captured the imagination of the British public in the pre-romantic period of the sublime and the picturesque. For instance, in the view of Vesuvius erupting by right of Derby, in which the oxymoron of darkness visible is visualized through juxtaposition, the visual equivalent of the oxymoron, which is no contradiction. Common sense, as we saw, ignores logical negation, but knows inversion and contrast. In right of Derby's painting, the eruption occurs at night, and the light of the erupting lava is an integral part of the night with which it contrasts. And this, of course, builds on the tradition, a clear source of influence for Rite of Derby, of the chiaroscuro from Caravaggio onwards, which is a pictorial equivalent of our, of our oxymoron down to its very name. In Milton, this step is represented towards the end of the first book by the discovery of the hill towards which a host of fallen angels are directed by their leader, where they will find the building materials for their new city. I quote, there stood a hill not far, whose grisly top belched fire and rolling smoke. The rest entire shone with a glossy scurf, undoubted sign that in his womb was hid metallic ore, the work of sulfur. We have reached the first step where darkness becomes material, or rather matter, is contaminated with darkness. The material comes from the innermost depths of the earth in the shape of that metallic ore that has just been expelled from, the, from its dark recess to emerge in the paradoxical light of the everlasting night of hell. And this ore, oxymoronically, may be black, but it consumes the most shining of all metals, gold, a physically bright but morally dark material as formulated in another famous oxymoron, Precious Bane, I quote, soon had this crew opened into the hill a capacious wound and digged out ribs of gold. Let none admire that riches grow in hell, that soil may best deserve the precious bane. The fourth and final step comes when from his dark yet glowing material, a magnificent building emerges, pandemonium, the high capital of Satan and his peers. That the archetypal oxymoron exerted lasting cultural force, Lovecraft is only a belated practitioner, is witnessed by the visualization of pandemonium in countless pre-romantic and romantic illustration of Paradise Lost. And the handout contains two uh, illustrations of pandemonium in Paradise Lost by John Martin. Perhaps the most striking are to be found in the work of John Martin. John Martin is known for his visions of apocalypse, best known of which is entitled The Last Days of His Roars. The earth is exploding and entire towns are seen upside down as the ground on which they were built has been sent up to the sky by the force of the explosion and is now falling down. But he's also known for his, his interest in science and in urban planning. In 1827, he was the author of a plan to ensure the, su the supply of pure water and the disposal of sewage in London. <coughs> when, therefore, he illustrates Milton, he pictures hell through a jumble of images 
borrowed from his knowledge of industry, and notably his experience of pit disasters. In the words of Francis Klingender, the Marxist historian of art and the Industrial Revolution, whom I am following here, I quote, John Martin gave hell the image of industry. Thus, when he illustrates a bridge which Satan builds over chaos between hell and earth in Book 10 of Paradise Lost, uh, that, uh, that uh, Martin turns a bridge into a causeway within a tunnel, a clear allusion to the tunnel under the Thames which Mark Isambard Brunel was driving under the river. And this vision of the Palace of Pandemonium is, again in the words of Klingender, I quote, a great rotunda, prophetically reminiscent of the Albert Hall, and illuminated not by cressets fed by naphtha and asphaltus, but by the corona of flaring gaslights, which Martin no doubt appropriated after a visit to the workings of the Thames Tunnel. End of quote. What is happening in Martin is the inscription in art of Blake's prophetic phrase, which has become a cultural cliché about the dark satanic mills spawned by the Industrial Revolution. The darkness of matter is inscribed in the black smoke belching from the, chim from the chimneys of the Midlands and the North Country, in the ever deeper caves of the mines and railway tunnels, and the industrial landscape takes the appearance of hell. Klingender quotes a passage from Dickens in which little Nell and her, and her grandfather visit Wolverhampton, as bleak a scene as could be imagined, in which, I quote Dickens, the end, that endless repetition of the same dull, ugly form, which is the horror, the horror of oppressive dreams, poured out their plague of smoke, obscured by the light, obscured the light, and made foul the melancholy air. The persistence of the cultural cliché that links dark epiphany with dark matter is attested by Humphrey Jennings's Pandemonium, that book of extracts in the vein of Walter Benjamin's Passagenwerk, of which Jennings was unaware, a documentary history of the Industrial Revolution in Britain, as its subtitle indicates, The Coming of the Machine as Seen by Contemporary Observers. Jennings, who is known for his association with the Surrealist movement, his contribution to the birth of mass observation, and most of all for his work as a film director with the GPO Film Unit, worked on this extract, which he called Images, for 13 years. The book was unfinished when he died in 1950, and was eventually published 30 years later by Charles Madge, a poet and co-founder of mass observation who later became professor of sociology at Birmingham University. In his introduction to his edited work, Madge describes Jennings's position as post-Marxist, insofar as the images chosen for the book combine representations of the means of production, in other words, the Industrial Revolution proper, with its dark satanic machines, with means of vision, in other words, the structures of feeling, to speak like Raymond Williams, that influence them as much as they reflected them. Madge adds that there is a certain aspect of the Jeremiah in Jennings' work, as the coming of the machine was not for him an example of unadulterated progress, but also a form of decay, 
the progress of the means of production came with a regress in the means of vision. That dark matter has a tendency to bring about dark epiphanies. For Jennings, this decay, metaphorized as a form of darkness, in which the very title of the book alludes, and the image to which, sorry, the very title of the book alludes, and the image on which the book begins, is, as we might expect, an extract from book one of Paradise Lost, The Building of Pandemonium, is due to the darkness of triumphant materialism. In one of the notes for introductions that he wrote, he says, I quote, the poets are the guardians of the animistic system, the scientists of the materialistic system. Here, of course, materialism has lost most of its philosophical meaning and has acquired in commonsensical, its commonsensical moral meaning of attachment to material as opposed to spiritual aspects of human life. But this contrast is, of course, an integral part of my correlation. For Jennings, therefore, the revolution of the machine is a source of unheard of material progress. It is also a, a moment of spiritual dereliction, a revolution of spiritual darkness. My contention is that, that what I have called a black epiphany, as a characteristic of the fantastic genre, is the inscription in literary text of this dark revolution. The, ter the term inscription, however, does not mean that the fantastic is a direct reflection of the Industrial Revolution, and the causal relation is, to say the least, mediated. This is how Klingander, a classic Marxist, evokes Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I quote, Horror assumed a new and startlingly topical meaning when in, 19, in 1818, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley created the symbol of Frankenstein to express the fear that science might cease to be the slave of man and become instead his master and destroyer. The stresses and contradiction arising from the conflict of classes in a rapidly changing economy were dramatized as a struggle between man and nature or between rival forces in nature. Milton's Satan was readily accepted as a symbol of the new scientific forces in society because he embodied intelligence, ingenuity, and science is in science in the cosmic struggle, and was at the same time a symbol of man's destruction and inevitable doom." End of quote. The darkness of material production, but also the darkness of epiphany, have disappeared here, as the Industrial Revolution is re represented by the scientific revolution that accompanied and supported it. And Satan is humanized, a symbol not of the darkness of the human heart, but of, of human intelligence and endeavor. And it is true that the creation of the monster in Frankenstein has dark material aspects, those fragments of, courses, of corpses pilfered from graveyards, but the production itself is dealt with in a single sentence, evoking that spark of life with which newly discovered electricity is able to revive a dead body. And if Victor Frankenstein experiences a very sudden change of heart when, as soon as the monster opens its eye, revulsion sets in and he immediately abandons his creature, it cannot really be described as a black epiphany, but rather, as in the terms of the theory of the event in Badiou, the beginning of a process of betrayal, whereby the subject of the event abandons his face 
and rejects a radically new situation in which he has immersed himself. But there may be a close, closer link between dark epiphany of the, the dark epiphany of the fantastic and the dark materialism of industrial revolution. An instance of this is to be found in Dickens's most famous ghost story, The Signal Man. The story is set in a deep railway cutting at the entrance to a tunnel. Here's a passage, here is a passage that describes the narrator's encounter with the hero, the signal man, and it is clear that the bottom line of my correlation is well represented. I quote, I resume my downward way and stepping out upon the level of the railroad and drawing nearer to him so that he was a dark, sallow man with a dark beard and rather heavy eyebrows. His post was in as solitary and dismal a place as I ever saw. On either side, a dripping wet wall of jagged stone excluding all view but a strip of sky. The perspective one way, only a crooked prolongation of his great dungeon. The shorter perspective in the other direction, terminating in a gloomy red light and the gloomier entrance to a black tunnel in whose massive architecture there was a barbarous, depressing and forbidding air. So little sunlight ever found its way to this spot that it had an earthly, deadly smell. And so much cold wind rushed through it that it struck a chill to me as if I had left the natural world. This is, explicitly so, a description of hell, down to the modern equivalent of pandemonium, that tunnel of massive architecture, the Industrial Revolution has created places of hell. And in this hell, the hero, no ordinary proletarian, but one who has been educated above, above his current station and had been in his youth a student of natural philosophy, encounters a fan fantastic phenomenon, the term must be taken in the strong acceptation one finds in the adjective phenomenal, in the guise of a ghost. As a result of his black epiphany, he becomes slightly mad. I am troubled, sir, I am troubled, and dies cut down by a train that rushes out of the tunnel. The ghost here is an oracle, which has come to give a signal to the signalman and announce his death. Only in the best tradition of Apollo Loxias, the quibbling god, in the form the signal man will fail to understand. Its epiphanic sign causes terror in the signal man, a terror that almost contaminates the down to earth narrator. I quote, the nameless horrors that oppressed me passed in a moment, end of quote. And the contents of the sign or signal concerns a material encounter between the body of the signal man and the archetypal product of the dark satanic mills, a locomotive. In this story, the link established in our culture through the correlation of common sense is inscribed and illustrated. This, I think, will tell us something about the function of the fantastic genre. I have elsewhere attempted an account of the genre in terms of Badiou's theory of the event. A fantastic text is a staging of the coming of the event and of its devastating impact on the situation in which it occurs. What I'm suggesting here is that it illustrates common sense, dominant ide ideological discourse, where epiphanies are light and spirit triumphs over matter, but through its inversion. It deals with oxymoronic dark epiphanies, not with genuine religious experience, which is also a form of Freudian denial. 
in which the dominated ideology of the subaltern, of the ever vanquished in the struggle between God and Satan, between the masters and the slaves, is indirectly heard. The phenomenon that is the cause of dark epiphany, inextricably linked as it is to the eruption of dark matter, definitely shatters the peace of the situation and bears witness to the devastating occurrence of a bad new event, in other words, a revolution. Satan, that the cause of dark epiphanies and the builder of pandemonium, is still the best figure of the revolutionary. And I thank you for your patience. <laughs>